When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Social Security is one of the most complex and confusing federal programs. With over 2,700 rules, it's no wonder that we're confused about when and how to start collecting and who to turn to for help. Welcome to Social Security Answers from the Experts, hosted by Martha Shedden. In this podcast series, Martha meets with professionals to provide you with the answers to questions about this most important financial decision. And now, here's your host, President and co-founder of the National Association of Registered Social Security Analysts, Martha Shedden. Hi, I'm Martha Shedden, and I'm here today with Chris Farrell, a Marketplace Senior Economics Contributor at American Public Media Group and author of several books, including Unretirement, Purpose and a Paycheck, and The New Frugality. Chris, welcome. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Ah, so I'm so glad that you uh, invited me to come on your show. So first of all, I'm very interested to know how you became an author who writes about retirement and its implications for health and happiness and security. How, how'd you become interested in these topics? Well, if my career has always been in journalism and sort of two aspects, one is personal finance. So if you think about the past two, three decades, you know, one of the big themes has been about saving for retirement. That's just one of the dominant themes that's out there, you know, in terms of looking at the stock market, the bond market, will people have enough? How do you know you? How do you know how much you should be saving? All those kinds of questions. And the other side has been the economics. And part of the long-term economic discussion has been about the demographics of aging. What's going to be the impact of an aging population on the underlying dynamism of the U.S. economy or the global economy? And you could say that the, the underlying tone of both was negative. You know, we're not saving enough. We're not going to be able to save enough. And then the demographics of aging is a terrible thing. And we're going to have just way too many of these old people, unproductive old people, dependent old people who are going to be supported by too few young workers. And so the underlying dynamism of the U.S. economy is just going to grind down. And it just always bothered me, you know. And so I just started doing some research. And you know, it was very easy to find negative stories, but particularly on the economic side, with doing some research, discovered all these economic studies, social studies, um, health-related studies, public health studies, that there was a much different discussion going on all around the world about, you know, the implications of longer life expectancy, uh, about the accumulation of skill and knowledge and that, you know, that old horrible expression, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. is just completely wrong and why it's completely wrong. But also there was an intriguing strand of research and it's a very difficult strand of research. So 
the people who do work longer, are they working longer because they're healthy? Or does working longer improve their health? Because you have to get up in the morning, uh, you're around people, you have to learn a new software system, whatever is, you know, type of work that you're doing. And of course, that's very difficult to tease out. But anyway, I got fascinated by this and start delving into these issues and then sort of joined this growing ecosystem of academics and think tanks and journalists that, you know, started to broaden the discussion about what it meant to be older as individuals, what it meant to be older as a society, but also, you know, rethinking and reimagining the economic implications of an aging society. So I found it fascinating. Well, and I appreciate that outlook that you have. I understand the negativity and it's, so it's really refreshing to know that there's people out there who are seeing the, the good in it all. And I think maybe a follow-up to that is over the past year and a half with the pandemic, thought that um, older people can't learn new tricks. I mean, they, they've certainly been able to adapt to the, you know, virtual world of work, don't you think? Have you found that? Yeah, I mean, I thought one of the things that comes out of the pandemic is the notion that as you get older, you don't understand this new technology um, just completely fades away. Uh, because in if you think about it for any length of time, you know it's not true because when I started my first office job, I had an IBM Selectric, and it was the one that if you didn't hit, hit the enter button, you could erase a line. So if you hit the enter button, then you had to use the whiteout, right? Well, go from the IBM Selectric to the dedicated word processor to the PC on your desk to uh, the smartphone, uh, the various tablets. I mean, we've adjusted to so many technologies over time. One more doesn't really. So what's the big deal? You know, it's another thing. And the only thing that ever happens is we pay for it. And there are these fascinating studies that come out, you know, young people adapt to a lot of technology very quickly because they're never paying for it. So they can just play around for it because somebody else is paying for it. Um, but, you know, we adopt all kinds of technology and we saw this with Zoom uh, and many of the uh, continuing care communities, assisted living communities, when people were being socially isolated and, you had Zoom conversations, not only with family members or with friends, but also within the complex itself, since people were often isolated into their own apartments. So that was just sort of one example. But the other example is the, the online grocery industry. And there was all this research, and they'd been told, and probably if you were in a meeting, they would probably have nodded and said, look, you know, your older customer, they can do things online, but they put no resources into it. Well, the jump in their online customers who were 60 and over was enormous, and it was eye-opening. And so that, again, is changing the business model. So I think one of the things that we're going to come out of, and, you know, as all these things are, it's structures take a long time to change. But I do think that coming out of this, and we're having this rapid adaption of the digital economy, and it's spreading more, that there is a recognition, by the way, your older customer, they're profitable. And, you know, there's not this digital divide that we think about. And therefore, hey, by the way, maybe your older worker may also be 
somebody that you want to retain because of their knowledge and their skills and their experience, rather than looking at that person and wondering, I wonder when they're going to retire. Right. And I've seen that in certain industries. So you've written a book called Unretirement that speaks to baby boomers retiring and the overall effect on our economy and social security in in particular. And you say that it'll actually create a positive transformation for our economy and society. So you've already talked about that a little bit, but can you tell us how that would happen and the overall message of this book? Well, the overall message of the book is there's all this skill, there's knowledge and experience. And we just sort of reach this point where we just toss all of that aside. And it's a real loss to our economy. And there's a wonderful uh, anecdote by uh, the late economist, John Kenneth Galbraith. And it's, it's in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And he wrote this essay called The Still Syndrome. And he wrote it when he was 90 years old. And the Still Syndrome is people who were, would come up, who were sort of in their 40s, early 50s, would come up to him. And they would say, um, oh, you're still walking. Oh, you're still exercising. Oh, I see. You're still having a cocktail. And, you know, or say, oh, I see you're still working. You're still writing. And of course, his favorite, he said, was when people would say, oh, I see you're still alive. And, you know, he wrote this wonderful essay. He was 90 years old. He died when he was 97 and continued, continued to write. And it's this sort of expectation that you're going to fade away uh, once you reach a certain age and you don't have anything left to contribute to society. And yet we're, we're better educated than before. And by the way, the millennial generation is better educated than the boomer generation. Uh, on average, we're healthier than before. They're uh, in recent times for uh, largely part of, of, of opioids and, and some other issues. Our life expectancies uh, has stagnated or gone down a little bit. But over a longer period of time, we're, we are living longer. We're living on average healthier um, and we are better educated. And so we still have a lot to contribute, but we have a system that has kind of one off-ramp called retirement. And retirement, if you still use that word, it has this notion that you go from working to leisure. That is the image. You know, you can, um, my parents, we never moved to Florida. My parents never did. But we used to like to sit around and watch the Seinfeld episodes. And everyone would laugh about going down uh, to Florida and visiting the aunts and the uncles. And that was the image of retirement, even to my parents, although my dad did not retire till 74. And then he continued to work after that. And if you look at the data, a majority of people don't go from working to leisure. Mm-hmm. There are bridge jobs, there's semi-retirement, there's part-time employment, there's flexible work, and typically it's bringing in some kind of an income. And the reason is bills are expensive, you're living longer, how much did you really save during the course of your working career, you need to bring in some money. Um, so there are a variety of reasons, both people need to, to bring in an income, but they also want to be doing something that they enjoy that brings in an income. And the gain to our society is pay more taxes, uh, less demand on services. So it's a net benefit for our society. We still don't take advantage of it. I still think that the most underappreciated asset in American society is the older worker 
the older person. I'm really encouraged to hear you say that. So by unretirement, what exactly are you saying that, because I totally understand this, I'm in my second career and I can't imagine not working and also working with social security and retirees, the word retirement, like you said, it, it's a connotation of quitting work. And it's also that that's when you do start collecting your social security. And those two things are not really related at all. You no, don't, you don't have to collect then. And so what does unretirement mean in that context? So unretirement is, we don't really quite have the right word yet, but unretirement sort of signals a stage of life around the era of retirement, but it's pushing against the notion that retirement means full-time leisure. So, but it's a broad-based term. So some people embrace encore careers. They've had one career and they do something, just as you said, you know, you're in your second career. That's one group of people. Um, there are other people who will shift to, uh, I've interviewed people who become part-time uh, Uber drivers or Lyft drivers. And this one woman I interviewed, she'd been, had a long career, various things. I think the last career was a real estate agent and she was in her seventies. And what she said, you know, she's sitting on the couch and she's taking the dog for a walk and she's watching some TV, one of her favorite shows. And then what she'll decide to do is turn on her phone and she'll drive for a couple of hours, no more than a couple of hours. And it brings in a couple some money that she then spends going on vacation with some friends that they've always gone vacation. So that's unretirement though. I consider that unretirement. And it's also the, you know, it's so a lot of it really is part-time work. Right. I mean, I think that's what most people are kind of looking for. It's a lot harder than it should be. Uh, a lot of times people, if they've been working in a kind of company for a long period of time, they may find that their part-time work is helping out their former employer coming back when someone's going on vacation or there's a special project. So it's a very broad-based term that mm-hmm. simply means, look, you're reaching that stage where you're saying goodbye to your employer for the last time, your colleagues for the last time, and you're calling it retirement because you're of a certain age. But really what you're doing is you're making a shift and you're making a shift into a next chapter. And so that's the British use things like third age. There's the term next chapters out there. Uh, There's all kinds of terms. I picked on retirement, but in a very broad based way. Yes, because it includes so many situations. I can see that. What? So your book, another book you wrote, Purpose and a Paycheck, Finding Meaning, Money, and Happiness in the Second Half of Life. What can you share with our audience about the interplay between those three finances, meaning and happiness? Right. So Purpose and a Paycheck had a stronger focus on starting your own business, which is usually self-employment, solopreneur, uh, maybe going into business with your children. Uh, that was, and, and because I think that that is a big change in our society. 20 years ago, if you mentioned you know, starting a business when you're in your 60s, for example, most people would have said, that's crazy. That's just crazy. Um, 
but it's not crazy. I mean, what most people are doing is they're taking their skills and their knowledge. You know, the office is the home in a, in a pre-COVID economy and hopefully in a post-COVID economy, maybe a co-sharing workspace. And the startup costs are very low. And, you know, it's not easy to, to start a business. It's not easy to run a business. There's all kinds of things you need to learn on pricing your product and it's your taxes are different. And so I'm not minimizing it, but more and more people are embracing it. And it's, it's clearly in the numbers because people have sort of, you know, a base, their home, they have some assets. And so you're not draining your 401k or your 403b to do this. Uh, it's a lot of sweat equity little bit of money. A lot of it's more computer-based or whatever has been your skill. And the thing is you're tapping into the people that you've met over the years doing your job. And now you're offering them a service. And this is something that's really growing and it's creative. And it has kind of that purpose and a paycheck mantra, right? You're, you're doing something. Most people don't start a business if they don't want to do it. Right. You do something else. So you kind of have some kind of a passion, some kind of infinity. It's something that you enjoy and it's creative, but it also gives you a little bit of flexibility because now that you're the boss, you can decide at some point, you know what? I don't want to do this any longer, but nobody else is making that decision for you. You're, you're making that decision. Sometimes the economy make the decision for you, but, um, but you're more in charge and you have a little more control over your path during these unretirement years. So there's a greater focus there. But the other part is that I have to emphasize for so many people, and it's hard because like age discrimination is real. It is out there. Uh, it cannot be minimized. But we have a retirement saving system that has too many flaws, too many holes in it. So the reality is for many people, they have to work more. And what I'm an advocate for is if you have to work more, let's at least try and find something to do that makes you an income that you actually want to be doing or gives you some satisfaction. You mentioned the retirement system is flawed. Can you talk specifically more about the Social Security program, um, even how that ties in with our own self-retirement planning that we are doing now, our 401ks, 403bs, and IRAs, what do you, how do you see those interacting and, and what can be fixed? Okay. So the, the core of the problem in the United States is, you know, depending on, but about 40% of the American workforce does not get a retirement savings plan at work. And if you look at it, who's saving and who's not saving, that's the key distinction. So, and typically there, these people are earning a lower income and may have a more unstable income. And so that's the real core of the problem. Then for the people who do have a retirement savings plan at work, we actually have a very complicated uh, system here, which is, you know, you have to make some decisions about how much is going to go in stocks, how much is going to go in bonds, how much can you withdraw when you are uh, starting to withdraw and how much are you going to put in there. And, you know, it's asking a lot of people. Now, the system has gotten better because there are some choices that kind of make it simpler, like target date funds and stuff like that. Nonetheless, we're asking a lot of people and a lot of people. And, it doesn't really take into account enough 
that most people don't work at one place for 30, 35 years. It works really well if you do. I mean, the fact of the matter is going on, but people lose their jobs. They have medical emergencies. They shift employers. They go from the for-profit sector to the not-for-profit sector. And so there's, you know, a lot of leakage along the way. And so we there is this conversation that tends to blame the individual for not having saved enough. And the fact is life is really difficult and people go through difficult times and it's not individual failings. I think the system is failing them. Within that context, for the typical worker, the single most important decision when it comes to retirement by the typical worker is when do they claim Social Security? Because Social Security is the bedrock. And here, I think there has been a shift in the conversation over the past 15 years compared to the previous 15 years. The conversation in the previous 15 years was always, you can claim Social Security as early as age 62, and you can delay as late as age 70. I think the conversation has now changed to, if you can, the best time to claim Social Security is age 70, because that's when you get the maximum benefit. But we have this really important safety net, which is, you know, if you need to have an income coming in, you can't get reemployed you can file for Social Security all the way down to age 62. If you have health issues, you can file for Social Security all the way down to age 62. If there are family caregiving responsibilities, you can claim Social Security all the way down to 62. So the advice is not, hey, you, you should claim Social Security at age 70. That's not the advice. The mm-hmm. advice is frame your discussion starting at age 70. That's when you get the maximum benefit. But there are lots of reasons why you might want to claim earlier. And that does not make you a bad person. That does not mean that you made some fundamental mistake. It just means that that's your safety net. But start with this in your mind. Okay, what would it take for me to claim at age 70 that I get the maximum Social Security benefit for the rest of my life? And then be practical about when it is that you can actually do it. I completely agree with you. And I, I term that the optimizing your social security. You hear a lot about maximizing your social security, which is a lot of times just waiting till 70, but it's so much more confusing with, with couples, with all those special situations you mentioned. And it's really a personal optimization decision. And I have seen that, that the percentage of people claiming a 62 is decreasing. It has really over the past decade or, or 15 years or so, which is, it's a good sign. Good. It's yeah. a good sign. And the other thing, just one quickly, I, because couples have so much more choice as opposed to individuals when it comes to what's a smart strategy, and there can be various permutations. They have only one really strong piece of advice. Talk to each other and coordinate your benefit decisions. This is not an individual decision. It's really about having a conversation, which as a household, how can we optimize, maximize our social security benefit? What makes sense? And unfortunately, you know, there are just too many stories of people not coordinating Uh their benefit decision. And it's not the end of the world. It's not a disaster. But the fact of the matter is they could have done better. So talk to each other and coordinate. That's the only two things you really need to know as a couple. Yes. And understand, um, I might add with that for couples, that survivor benefit is dependent on the hire of the two. And so 
a lot of times that is still the husband who has the higher earnings. And it's difficult when there isn't that coordination, like you said, and the husband's determined to start at 62. And it's, you know, it might not be the best situation, but that's right. um, Yeah, that's critical. So what do you think? Is there something different about the baby boomer retirement experience in terms of finances that's different from other generations? It seems like the baby boomer generation does everything different. <laughs> I think there is. I think there's a couple things going on. One is the the younger boomers are really fading away from defined benefit pension plans, which was a bigger deal for the older boomers. Now, the the defined benefit pension plan, your traditional pension plan, where when you retire, you get essentially what looks like a paycheck for the rest of your life. You know, again, a majority of the workforce did not have that, but enough did that it really did make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so as you get younger and you go to the younger ages, you know, that defined benefit pension plan shrinks in importance. And we're all much more dependent on uh, the 401ks, the 403bs, the defined contribution pension plan, which is puts much more of the risk on the individual mm-hmm. than on an institution, your employer. So, you know, that is having big implications. And then the other thing is, as we mentioned earlier, we are living longer, we are uh, better educated. So the working longer is something that is attractive to a growing number of people. But again, so on the financial side, there's this pressure and the pressure is growing on the younger generations to work longer in order to, you know, have, you know, the prospect of a comfortable retirement. But there is also this this aspect of being better educated and living longer and wanting to stay engaged and wanting to be doing something. So, I think what is happening is our stories are breaking up. We had the sort of image of the life, which is you go to school. You go to work and you retire full-time leisure. And that was kind of the image. It actually didn't last that long. It's a post-World War II image, but it did last and it was very powerful. That's broken up. In a sense, we still go to school, but our careers are longer and they tend to be broken up more. And there tend to be more pivots in that. And then when we hit that retirement, we're kind of trying to figure that out. As we said, what's the right word? But I think in at least the early years of retirement, unretirement is probably the more accurate term. Uh, Eventually, it becomes more like retirement. So things are kind of breaking up. Um, Where do we live when we're in those retirement ages, the image that comes right to mind is you, you know, you move uh, to Florida, Arizona, and you live in a, in a community, 55 plus, that, and that's still the dominant image. But when you actually look at people's housing arrangements, that's still, that's still going on. That's still one choice. But more and more people are choosing to stay where they are because their children might be there or because their family and friends are there. And that's also part of your safety net. So some people aren't comfortable leaving, go to a totally different state, be around people that they don't know, and leaving their sort of personal safety net. And it's not just a safety net, but these are the people that they have connections with behind. So we're seeing that trend, less living in age-segregated communities, greater desire to live in a multi-generational home. So what I would say is that we're trying out a lot of experiments. 
these are real world experiments, which means that when they fall through, it can be really horrendous. It can be really terrible. Uh, so when I use the word experiment, it has kind of like a, this positive connotation. But some of these experiments are going to go bad, and that has a real cost to real people. But there is this genuine experimentation going on. What's the rethinking healthcare, rethinking where we're going to live, rethinking work, as we and this is all involved rethinking transportation. You know, as we're aging, so it's an it's a period of where we're trying to figure things out. And, and the only thing I can say is, so my youngest is 20, 28, 29 years old, and I think it's a safe forecast that when he's fifty five, he will have a very different image of what he's going to do next than I did when I was fifty five, because when I was fifty five, it was pretty much the traditional image dominated. And I think when he's 55, it's going to be a very different set of expectations. Yes, there already is. They're already living a different life than we did when we were that age and more power to them, I say. (laughs) Um, Let me ask you, what do you think some of the most common financial mistakes are that folks who are about to retire make? Well, I think one of them has to do with Social Security. And one of the reasons why you want to be claiming Social Security later um, is that it's the best longevity insurance out there. It adjusts for inflation. You can't outlive it. So if you live for a long time, this is your best insurance policy. Now, a lot of people don't like that. They're worried about dying early. And that's one of the reasons why they want to claim. But if you've made it to, say, you know, 60 and you just, you know, now everything's an average, right? And you no individual is an average, but you look at the averages, you say, you know, you should be worrying about the longevity, not the dying early with some ex- notable exceptions where people would be aware of that. So I think that's probably one of the most controversial and least liked things that I talk about or write about hmm. is this framing as we were talking about at age 70. I think that's really, you know, one of the big mistakes. I think the other big mistake is there is in the financial services industry this conversation that if you haven't saved money by the time you're 55, 60, you know, financially, you're just in trouble. And the reality is, no, that's just simply not true. And it's this despairing message that I dislike. And and here's the thing. If you think about uh, households with children, you know, the notion that you're going to set aside 20% of your income when you have children and they're growing up and you're going to do it every year, you know, for most people, that is completely unrealistic. They're just not going to be able to. But the notion that you could set aside 20% of your income if you're working in your 60s and your kids have left the house and they are out there and they're making their own careers and they're making their own lives is not unrealistic. Again, not for everybody, but it's much more realistic to say to people, hey, save 20% of your income when you are in your 60s if you're still working um, because you're not paying for children. Because guess what? Kids are really expensive, right? But this notion, so, you know, my thing is look, you can learn new skills, you can, um, you know, learn new technologies, you can save money, Uh, you can really have much more control on your spending, which actually is a lot more important than your savings, is to think about what am I spending my money on and what are the cumulative savings from lowering how what you spend on on a regular basis. So 
I think what I would push against that there is a big mistake about uh, despair if you're not, you know, flush uh, with savings once you, you know, are nearing those retirement years. I wouldn't have despair, and I do think that you, you know, you need to be thinking about sort of an insurance mindset when it comes to Social Security. It's an important income, but it's also important that if you do live longer, that's your best insurance policy there is. I couldn't agree more. Now, I read that you wrote about the FIRE, the financially independent retire early. Did you coin that term, Chris? No, no, I did not coin the term. My son is a, is such a fan of that. Can you explain that more to our audience? Because I think it's really resonating with the younger generation. Right. So FIRE is, and it's, this is typically for people who have a decent income. They have a, you know, they're earning a good income, you know, an okay income. And you just save like crazy and you spend hardly anything and you just save, save, save. And because you want to be financially independent, retire early. And so they save enormous amounts of money. You know, you're talking 30, 40, 50%, 60%. I mean, big numbers year in, year out. And a lot of it has to do on the spending side. So they're making a decent income, but it's really, they'd hardly spend anything. And then they're financially independent and then they can do what they want and they no longer have to, you know, work for the man. That's right. So it is that independence. Um, there are two things I would say about FIRE. One is when you actually look at it, the unfortunate thing is to retire early because they're really not re- retiring early. If you actually look at what they're doing, they're, it's different things. So they no longer have to work for an employer, but they typically they have stuff going on that is bringing in an income. So it's really that they've liberated themselves uh, from a lot of the pressure. You know, I have to pay the mortgage that many people will say, well, why do you stick with that job you don't like? Well, I got to pay the mortgage and, you know, I got to pay for my kid's education. And, you know, they come with the reasons and they've liberated themselves from that. So the retire early, I actually think is somewhat of a misnomer. And there was early on, that's what people would do. They, they'd be pictures of them on the beach, Costa Rica or whatever, see what I'm doing. But when I talk to more and more people, I think it's it's much more admirable because I'll be there, well, you retired at age 50, and then what are you going to do down the beach for the next 30, 40 years? Uh, yeah. But really. I think that was a real misnomer. I mean, when you actually look at it is they have low overheads, they have freedom, they can take jobs when they want, they can not do jobs when they don't want to, they can do experiments, they can get some additional education. So it's really kind of freeing yourself from the shackles of regular employment in order to pay off your debts. Mm-hmm. And it appeals to a lot of them, I know. They've got that drive to follow that. So, it's- But for most people, when you look at the, it, it is an extreme lifestyle. Yeah. Early on. So for a lot of people are going to rebel against that for understandable reasons, and that's fine. But here's the thing. Just save something. I mean, I think this is really the message that comes out is just save something. And it doesn't matter how little it is. But if you get into that mindset, if you get a raise, you just take a little bit of that and add to your savings. You know, if you embrace sort of a frugal lifestyle, which is really more about quality than quantity, frugal frugality has got nothing to do with cheapness, but it's about, you know, 
Mm -hmm. to the quality of our life. And you have that sort of, I am going to save something out of whatever it is I'm earning, whatever it is I get. You know, the fact of the matter is that's going to hold you in good stead over the long haul. So I don't think you need to take, I'm going to save 60% of my income. Right. But what you need to take away is, you know what? If I keep my debts down, if I embrace a frugal lifestyle and I do save some money, you know, you're going to be in a financially good position. Yes, exactly. And especially if they're starting that young and saving, they have that compound interest working for them on what they are saving. My last question would be, um, if you had the power to, you know, my focus is on social security and everyone worries about it. It's going to not be there for us. It's going to run out in the 2030s. And there's so many things that can be done from your vantage point and what you've learned and written about. What are the things that you would change to extend the longevity of that program? Okay. So I think the safest forecast that I can make, and you know, forecasting is hazardous to your wealth, but the safest forecast that you can make is that Social Security will be there when the younger generations retire. And I really don't like this theme that's out there. Oh, Social Security won't be there when I retire. That's wrong. It's the bedrock. Now, there may be something better, but and that's great. And that happens. But it is the bedrock of America's financial retirement system. And it will be there. I personally would just like to see it uh, funded better sooner rather than later. The odds are it'll be refunded at the last moment uh, when the crisis looms. I don't want them to extend the age of uh, when you qualify for Social Security, because I think that's a cut in Social Security benefits, which people don't need. So I think what we're going to end up doing is uh, we're going to raise the cap on contributions to Social Security. Mm-hmm. And I believe I'm right about this, but I think we are the, at least the major industrialized nations were the only ones that had that cap. You know, that restores an awful lot of the financial stability. You know, once you get into it, that it's solvent for the next 30 to 40 years, I just stop worrying at that point because uh, they're using 75 year forecasts. So I would say raise the cap. I would actually increase the benefits. I would simplify it if you could. All those things. And, but I do think that people need to, that Social Security is the bedrock and it will be there and it needs to be financially sound because actually, outside of the extremely small sliver of unbelievably wealthy in the United States, mm-hmm. people rely on Social Security. And what do you say to those of the younger generation that do say that? And how do you engage them to be invested in this so that when these changes come or they need to vote on something that they're informed about it? How do you make that younger generation understand the importance of this program? Look at their... Look at their elders, look at their parents, look at their aunts, look at their uncles, look at their neighbors. Uh, we live in a world of multiple generations. And unfortunately, there's a cottage industry that tries to stoke intergenerational conflict. But the fact is, the generations learn from each other. Uh, they support each other. That's one of the things that we learned from the pandemic was how important were the generations. And there was a group of people who really wanted to throw older people 
basically out the window. And the younger generation didn't buy into that at all, at all, and never took up that theme. So I think it's, you know, emphasizing the, the intergenerations and that you too are going to get older. And actually some of the people that you love are older. And guess what? Ask them how important is social security to them. And you some point are going to be their age, hopefully. And um, you'll be in the same position they're in. Well, thank you so much. This has been just a pleasure to talk to you. As I said, I could keep talking quite a while. I really appreciate you being on our podcast. And thanks again. Well, thank you. Oh, as a last thing, though, where can people follow you, find out more about your work, or easily read some of your books or what you've written? Yes. So for the books, they're available uh, online, uh, Unretirement and Purpose and a Paycheck, and also The New Frugality. Those three are are available online. And uh, The New Frugality is a personal finance book. And then um, chrisfarrell.net is uh, my website. Don't do a good job of keeping it up, but that will at least give you an idea where to, to look for me elsewhere. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you.